Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. Today, for your listening pleasure, we have an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on June 1st, 2020, under the headline, Mailing Out a Box of Panties Got Dynamite Killer Caught. It is the second and final part of a two-part series on the Richard Brumfield case. Part one was presented on this podcast yesterday. Part two, here it is. Brumfield's journey home was a bit unconventional. One of the sheriff's deputies, in a burst of enthusiasm, told a newspaper reporter that the suspect would be chained hand and foot to an upper berth on the train ride home. The railroad promptly yanked the Americans' passes and they almost had to walk home. Eventually, they relented and let them buy passenger tickets, and they rode the whole way to Portland in the smoking car, arriving exhausted. When they got there, they found murder victim Dennis Russell's friends spoiling for a fight. It wasn't a lynch mob, but it wasn't a welcome wagon team either. Brumfield had to wait a week or so in Portland for things to cool down. Finally, in the middle of the night, he was smuggled into Roseburg and put in the jail there. Meanwhile, up at the farm where he'd been working in Canada, the police had found two unposted letters among Brumfield's belongings. The first they found hidden under his mattress. It was a confession signed Dennis Russell, in which Russell admitted to having accidentally killed Brumfield in a car fire. Brumfield had written it with a deliberately unsteady hand, using a sort of a country patois of colloquialism and bad spelling in an obvious attempt to fight the mountain of evidence that it was Russell's body and not his that was found in that car. Apparently, he had been preparing to mail it to Roseburg. The other letter he had already mailed, or tried to. It was entrusted to another farmhand who was going to town for a day or two, with instructions to mail it to Clara Killam of Lake Louise, Alberta. The farmhand took it, but before he left for town, Brumfield was arrested, so the farmhand turned it over to the police instead. In it, according to the Oregonian's account, Brumfield expressed great affection for Mrs. Kellum and said he hoped to get away to Australia soon and that he would take her along if she cared to go. He had, it turned out, met Killam while he was on the run when he'd stayed at a hotel where she worked. Apparently, Dr. Brumfield was quite the ladies' man. In Portland especially, there was much discussion of the box of silk panties and other ladies' apparel that had led to Brumfield's arrest. Portland officials have advanced many theories, the most usual one being that he was a mental and moral degenerate of some particular type, the Oregonian reported coyly in its August 14th issue. I have just been informed that Brumfield was quite the amateur female impersonator. Portland District Attorney Walter Evans gossiped happily to reporters at a press conference on August 13th. This leads me to believe that he is of that type of degeneracy which gets a thrill out of handling women's wearing apparel, especially of lingerie. The fact that he risked almost certain capture in order to have a box of women's silk apparel shipped up to Calgary from Seattle shows that he was abnormal in that respect. It is a matter of history he went on to opine, that many of the most vicious murder crimes of history have been committed by men of that type. 
As a side note, if Walter Evans' name rings a bell, that may be because he's one of the city officials who posed for an infamous photo with a pair of hooded Ku Klux Klan members, which appeared in the Portland Evening Telegram that same year. The Multnomah County Sheriff, also asked for an opinion on the matter, opined that society had Agatha Christie to thank for Brumfield's crime, that the dentist had read too many murder mystery novels, and they had gotten him to thinking about the chances of killing and getting away with it. Down in Douglas County, though, the discussion of the panty box puzzle was much more grounded. Evans' cross-dresser theory was dismissed out of hand. According to the shopkeeper who had sold it, none of the lingerie in the box was big enough to fit Brumfield. Nor was it small enough to fit the slim, dark-haired woman who had helped Brumfield buy it, but yet it was also too small to fit Mrs. Brumfield. He couldn't have been buying it for Clara Killam. He had not met her yet. The only conclusion was that he had bought it for yet another woman— Mrs. Norman Whitney, if she existed? Did he have two families or something? Roseburg authorities were baffled. Was this whole thing a diversion? Was Brumfield planning on bugging out and starting a new life in Australia and just trying to get authorities to concentrate on Canada while he did that? And just how many women was this small-town dentist on intimate terms with, anyway? Meanwhile, Brumfield was in jail and drifting in and out of a state of total breakdown. First, he insisted that his name was Dennis Russell. Then he dropped that, admitted his identity, but said he remembered nothing from the crash. I want to see this thing settled up, he told reporters. I know I could not have committed such a deed, or I would certainly feel some remorse, and I feel none. Oh, if only I could remember, but all is a blank. As denials go, that was pretty squirrely, and it did nothing to loosen anyone's conviction that he was guilty of the crime. As the noose tightened around him, Brumfield's behavior became very erratic. Sometimes he'd be very cool and collected, other times he'd be roaring and raging. At one point, he seems to have tried to commit suicide by cop by attacking a deputy nicknamed Two-Gun Hopkins with a chair. The deputy whipped out his service revolver, and Brumfield apparently lost his nerve and put the chair down. Later, he tried to punch a newspaper reporter who questioned his identity as Dennis Russell after he switched back to that story. Two psychologists interviewed him, and both were convinced that he was, in fact, crazy. They were, of course, right, but after the crime he had committed, no one wanted to hear that. When the verdict came back down, it was, predictably, guilty. Brumfield was promptly sentenced to hang. Brumfield took the news very well, or seemed to. So that's the verdict, is it? He murmured disdainfully and held his head high as he was escorted from the room. Behind him, his wife had collapsed, sobbing. Richard Brumfield never made it to the scaffold. He killed himself in his cell, but it took two tries to do it, and in both cases there are reasons to wonder if he might have had help. The first one was just a few days after the trial ended, when the night jailer noticed a puddle of blood running out of his cell. Investigating, he found Brumfield lying on his cot in a semi-conscious state with his throat cut. As a scene of a suicide attempt, it made as little sense as anything else in this case. A hurried search of the cell turned up no weapon. The attempt had been made with an instrument duller than a razor, but sharp enough to cut two inches deep into human flesh, and it had somehow disappeared. If Brumfield had carried it to the toilet or thrown it out the window after slashing his throat with it, there would have been a blood trail, and there wasn't. It was a puzzler. The best theory was that he had used his partial dental bridge plate to do it, no doubt having sharpened it on the concrete floor prior to making the cut, and then stuck it back in his mouth afterward. This theory was bolstered by the fact that the cut got infected and he nearly died of blood poisoning from it. But if they ever inspected his bridge plate to see if it had an edge to it, nobody shared that info with the newspapers. 
Meanwhile, the usual round of appeals dragged into the new year. But before they could reach their inevitable conclusion, Brumfield tried again. He was found dead in his cell on September 13, 1922, having managed to hang himself from his bunk using his bedsheets. So what's the real story of Richard Brumfield? Even today, it's a remarkably unsatisfying account. There's plenty of evidence that Brumfield committed the murder, but there's also a bunch of evidence that makes no sense at all in that context. Why would a murderer mail a box of sexy panties to the exact place he planned to run away to the day before an apparently premeditated crime? Was Mrs. Norman Whitney a real person, and if so, who was she? Did Brumfield have a second family in Calgary? Then, too, why would a man who's contemplating a murder like this use such a small amount of dynamite? Why would he stage the entire pageant on Pacific Highway, the most heavily trafficked road in the area? Was there a second man involved in the plot, as the district attorney broadly hinted to reporters? Why was his wife so doggedly insistent that the burned corpse was that of her husband when it was so obvious to everyone else that it was not? Was she in on it? And those suicide attempts. How many people, crazy or not, can cut two inches into their own throats with a dull instrument? How many can hang themselves from a bunk bed without help? If he had help, who could have provided it? It's possible that all these anomalies can be explained by Brumfield simply being an unhinged homicidal maniac, and yeah, maybe that's all there was to it. But looking back over the record at all the loose ends hanging off this messy little murder mystery, a person sure has to wonder. Key sources in this story included works by Jason Lucky Morrow and the archives of the Portland Morning Oregonian, June 1921 through September 1922, also historicalcrimedetective.com. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I do hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. Check out our hub page at offbeatoregon.com to explore all the other things we do or to find full citations and visuals that go with today's show. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details of that, see offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Offbeat Oregon History episodes are uploaded every weekday morning at around 6 a.m., so it'll be a couple of days before you get your next fix. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day and the subsequent weekend with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.